Burning Books with Eric Beck-Rubin. Hello and welcome to episode 30, the 30th anniversary of the Burning Books podcast, where we discuss, celebrate, and explore great books, very good books, books in which there's something to appreciate or admire, as well as books that are the opposite of all these things. Today, we'll talk about The Lusion Defense, Vladimir Nabokov's third novel, which traces the abbreviated, peripatetic life of a chess prodigy. This one was crowdsourced in the sense that I asked Twitter what it thought of this book and got back positive vibes. The first mature Nabokov, they said. The moment where we can begin to see the novelist in his full efflorescence. The Illusion Defense was initially published in Russian in 1930, translated into English by Michael Scammell in collaboration with the author in 64. So let's go NE6 to counter F24 and start this game. Chapter 1. What struck him most was the fact that from Monday on, he would be Lusion. His father, the real Lusion, the elderly Lusion, the writer of books, left the nursery with a smile, rubbing his hands, already smeared for the night with transparent cold cream, and with his suede-slippered evening gait, padded back to his bedroom. His wife lay in bed. She half-raised herself and said, Well, how did it go? He removed his gray dressing gown and replied, We managed. Took it calmly. Oof, that's a real weight off my shoulders. How nice, said his wife, slowly drawing the silk blanket over her. Thank goodness, thank goodness. These are the opening lines of the Lusion Defense. I should say Lusion Defense, because that's how the author explains it should be pronounced. It's meant to suggest illusion. And in this first scene, we are introduced to one of the illusions hovering around our main character. The idea that he has become a grown-up. The idea that, by giving him an adult name, he has become a man. But a leading motif of this novel is the fact that while Little Lusion does grow old, he never matures. He remains a child, and it is in Nabokov's descriptions of this peculiar, ornery, introverted, difficult child that the best writing and the most enjoyable aspects of this book reside. Here is, for example, Little Lusion's response to the news that he was given above, that from now on he would, like his father, be called Lusion. The sun blushed, began to blink, threw himself supine on his pillow, opening his mouth and rolling his head. Don't squirm like that, said his father apprehensively, noting his confusion and expecting tears, but did not break into tears, and instead buried his face in the pillow, making bursting sounds with his lips into it, and suddenly rising, crumpled, warm, with glistening eyes. He asked rapidly whether at home, too, they would call him Lusion. The squirming, the strange movement of lips, the offbeat question, yes, yes, perfect ideal. This is why we read Nabokov, the diction, the syntax, illuminating each word, putting it exactly where it belongs. The early chapters of this book follow this square peg of a boy as he suffers at home and in school, especially in school, never fitting in, never trying to fit in, but suffering the consequences of being an outcast. In short, Lusion is a flutter in the world. He has his routines, life in the city, life in the country, his daily walks, the passion play that is his schooling, but nothing makes much of an impression on him. Nothing, that is, until a certain night when his father gives a party at their large house and Lusion discovers chess. Context. The party is occurring in the main room of the house, but Lusion is hiding, in the dark, 
in his father's study, avoiding the festivities, but also avoiding being tucked into bed. Suddenly, a musician who had been hired for the party comes to take a phone call in the father's study. As the musician settles into Lucian Sr.'s chair for the phone call, little Lucian spies on him, both enthralled and disturbed by the nonchalance of this intruder, this usurper. Lucian had almost dozed off when suddenly he started at the ringing of a telephone on the desk. The butler came in from the dining room, turned on in a passing light which illuminated only the desk, placed the receiver to his ear, and without noticing Lucian, went out again, having carefully laid the receiver on the leather-bound blotter. A minute later he returned, accompanying a gentleman, who as soon as he entered the circle of light picked up the receiver from the desk and with his other hand groped for the back of the desk chair. The servant closed the door behind him, cutting off the distant ripple of music. Hello, said the gentleman. Lucian looked at him out of the darkness, fearing to move and embarrassed by the fact that a complete stranger was reclining so comfortably at his father's desk. No, I've already played, he said, looking upwards, while his white, restless hand fidgeted with something on the desk. Lucian could see his profile, an ivory nose, black hair, a bushy eyebrow. Frankly, I don't know why you are calling me here, he said quietly, continuing to fiddle with something on the desk. If it was only to check up. You silly. He laughed and commenced to swing one foot in its patent leather shoe regularly back and forth. Then he placed the receiver very skillfully between his ear and his shoulder, and replying intermittently with yes and no, and perhaps, used both hands to pick up the object he had been playing with on the desk. It was a polished box that had been presented to his father a few days before. Lucian Jr. had still not had a chance to look inside, and now he watched the gentleman's hands with curiosity. However, he turned in such a way that Lucian could see nothing from behind his black shoulder. Lucian moved cautiously, but a cushion slid onto the floor and the gentleman quickly looked round. "'What are you doing here?' he asked, spying Lucian in the dark corner. "'My, my, how bad it is to eavesdrop!' Lucian remained silent." "'What's your name?' asked the gentleman amiably. Lucian slid off the divan and came closer. A number of carved figures lay closely packed in the box. "'Excellent chessmen,' said the gentleman. "'Does Papa play?' "'I don't know,' said Lucian. "'And do you play yourself?' Lucian shook his head. "'That's a pity. You should learn. At ten, I was already a good player.'" At this moment, Lucian Sr. enters the room looking for the musician, and finding him along with his furtive son. Then the following exchange occurs, which sets the scene for the romance between Lucian, the reader, and the game of chess. What a game, what a game, said the violinist, tenderly closing the box. Combinations like melodies, you know, I can simply hear the moves. In my opinion, one needs a great mathematical skill for chess, said Lucian Sr., and in that respect I... They are waiting you, maestro. I would rather have a game, laughed the violinist as he left the room. The game of the gods, infinite possibilities. Linking the movements on a chessboard to musical melodies, as this passage does, relates the game to Nabokov's mellifluous prose style. Martin Amos said it was Nabokov's writing rhythm, rather than his diction, that had the greatest effect on him. And in this book, when it's going well, chess, music, and words all flow effortlessly together, each amplifying the power of the others. From the moment that Lucian serendipitously discovers chess, it's game on. Everyone else, father, teachers, schoolmates, falls by the wayside. 
Soon, Lucian is playing hooky, and Lucian Sr. is distraught, sensing his son's untethering. But he's not able to do anything about it. No one is able to do anything about it. Lucian has cast himself adrift of this world, and is blithely entering another one, a better one, played on a grid of checkerboard patterns. The early chapters of the Lusian defense are marked by forks in the road, half-revealed possibilities, and abundance of hints. It tantalizes us with potential, Lusian's potential and the stories. In these early chapters of the novel, the author gives the reader many different ways to read Lusian and his obsession with chess. There is chess as a form of music, a sense of the real world being an ersatz version of chess. Chess, it is strongly suggested, is a stand-in for Russia. Chess is presented as a form of reduction or distillation. Lusian, for instance, prefers to play games by notation rather than on the board. Chess is also portrayed as an all-consuming delirium, where all the colors of the world are thrown into a washing machine and come out black and white. As the chapters pass, many of these threads are teased, but few, if any, are developed in any kind of satisfying way. Take the chess as Russia line. Lusian is bred in pre-revolutionary Russia, and when the revolution comes, he chooses exile. While in exile, especially while living in Berlin, he falls in with a crowd of exiles from a similar class. When he was a child in Russia, Lusian's passion for chess was, if not nurtured, then at least tolerated. While in exile, though, in Russian circles, his standing as a chess player is ridiculed. But what does he actually do, is the common question that dogs Lusian. The author, in turn, describes these doubting Russians as nostalgia-tinged, kitsch-loving, superficially Russian types. In other words, not real Russians. There seems to be a story here, but it goes no further than that. Perhaps the best-developed line of investigation is the one where Chess takes over Lusian's world, which is one way of reading the title of the novel, Chess as a Defense, a Last Bulwark Against Reality. In various, often imaginative and unexpected ways, the author shows us how Lusian dissolves the physical world around him into a mid-game chess scenario. Given a piece of paper, Lusian will divide it into sections. Given the facade of an apartment building, he will make the windows into squares. Given a walk in the park, Lusian will trace playing patterns in the sand with the tip of his cane. Given a dull conversation with a female acquaintance, and Lusian sees all conversations not about chess as dull, he will simply slip into an imaginary match. Here he is, for instance, talking to his future mother-in-law, who doesn't like Lusian at all, and is foretelling a miserable future between this no-good chess player and her only daughter. The mother-in-law is hysterical about the pending nuptials. She's always hysterical about something, but Lusian is only semi-present. He's thinking about chess. I know you, she said. You would probably like to get married today, right away. Then she'll be going out with a big belly, He'll brutalize her immediately. Having stamped out a shadow in one place, Lusian saw with despair that far from where he was sitting, a new combination was taking shape on the floor. If you are in the least interested in my opinion, then I must tell you I consider this match ridiculous. You probably think my husband will support you. Admit it. You do think that. Here the nuisances on the floor became so brazen that Lusian involuntarily put out a hand to remove Shadow's King from the threat of Light's Pawn. From that day on, he avoided sitting in that drawing room, where there were too many knickknacks of polished wood that assumed very definite features if you looked at them long enough. Love that, and I'm sure that Nabokov does too, which makes the reader wonder, why does he stop? 
For a good 140 pages or so, we have one excellent, offbeat, strange, and crookedly beautiful description of Lucian after another. Lucian as an absent-minded child. Lucian as a preternaturally aged young man. Lucian the endlessly enigmatic freak. Then something unaccountable happens. Lucian, as you just heard in that last excerpt, meets a woman. And the story never recovers. Lucian doesn't try to court this woman. In fact, he does the opposite. But his aloofness just draws the future Mrs. Lucian closer and closer. The turning point in the relationship comes when Lucian, during the course of a tournament game against his nemesis, Turati, suffers what is probably a nervous breakdown. In helping him to recover, his wife, along with a doctor, insists Lucian give up chess, and, to the detriment of the novel, he does. At least for a time. But if we consider that time to account for fully a third of the book, the stage during which the themes should be developed, strengthened, explored, interpreted, the problem becomes clear. It's like the train is stopped somewhere in the countryside, and, for chapter after chapter, the signal flashes a stubborn red. Stasis. And what's more, a stasis that's filled with uninteresting characters like Mrs. Lusion, her mother, who is good for the occasional laugh but little more, her father, their friends, and a bunch of other unmemorables. For too long, Lusion's superego smothers his chess-loving id, and the book becomes just about as exciting as watching two kings chasing each other around an empty board. Chess, and charming chess-based flights of lunacy, were the heart of this novel, and that heart was ripped out for no discernible reason. It's inevitable chess will return, and it does, but by that time, the end game, my eyes were slightly glazed over. I have a suspicion that the Lusion defense would have done better as a novella than as a novel. Cut out Mrs. Lusion. Cut out the telegraphed ending. Hew closer to the fascinatingly deranged world of Lusion, and the story might have been so much stronger. This is, after all, what Nabokov does in his great novel, Pnin, which rarely leaves Pnin alone and never attempts to change him, dull him, restrain him. And the same can be said for Nabokov's later and far better novel about chess, The Real Life of Sebastian Knight. That's Knight with a K. The great Nabokov of those later books does pop his head out in these pages. The scene of Little Lusion seeing the wrong man in his father's study, for instance, is an eerie precursor of one of the most powerful scenes in all of Nabokov's fiction, when Sebastian Knight's brother is in the room as Sebastian expires, only to find out later it wasn't Sebastian. Likewise, there is a scene in the Lusion defense where an older gentleman plays with a younger nymph, a scene and a word that repeats itself in Lolita. I can see why others see the best of Nabokov in this earlier book. It is present, but incipient. I'm not saying skip the illusion defense. For one, at its best, it provides one of the great pleasures of reading Nabokov, which is the author's incredible handle on language. Whether it's describing an eccentric waistcoat or an unbelievable loofah, his choice of words is unexpected and unmatched. I might say that if you don't derive pleasure from excellent writing on a sentence-by-sentence level, Maybe this book isn't for you, but then, if you don't like Nabokov's prose, maybe reading isn't for you. As a storyteller, though, what the Lusion defense shows is that he's still not fully confident. His later works went where they wanted to go. This one only seemed to be able to move according to the rules. I'd be remiss if I didn't make two recommendations at the tail end of this episode. An essay by Julian Barnes about a world championship chess competition, which appears in his collection Letters from London, and another essay, this one by Martin Amos, 
about Kasparov versus Karpov in his collection, Visiting Mrs. Nabokov. And while you're there, you might just want to check out the following essay about the Rolling Stones at Earl's Court. Nobody will ever describe Mick Jagger the same way. This well-put-together, vitamin-packed unit of a human being does not really dance anymore. It's simply that his head, his shoulders, his pelvis, both his arms, both his legs, both his huge feet, and both his buttocks are wriggling at great speed, independently, all the time. And that was in 1970. Thank you for listening. Next up on Burning Books will be a review of the Algerian novelist Boualem Sansal's The German Mujahid. Burning Books is part of the Latopia network of podcasts, and you can hear back episodes, subscribe, and reach me there via the email the show button, all by going to latopia.com, spelled the way it sounds, and following the link to Burning Books. I also enjoy getting your tweets, nasty and nice. I'm at Burning Books Pod. My thanks to Hakan Ozgan for the music. There are several ways to thank someone. So, let's start with the easiest. Teşekkürler. To Peter Cox, executive producer of the program. First word is vitamins. It's vitamins, oh my god. And as always, go Jays. Go Jays. Just go. Go. Win some games in a row. Go on a winning streak. Yes. Thank you. April is the